Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. Look. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through. Here's a shot. This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. Hammers it home. Oh my goodness. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to uh, We Have Ways. And uh, and it just sounds really good to hear it, it in it German. It does actually, to uh, nearly a year, to allow <laughs> ourselves um, the full achtung. Um, we are at the National Army Museum again on the uh, Royal Hospital Road in London's fashion <laughs> and uh, we are in the archive with Dr. Peter Johnston, who is the archivist here at the National Army Museum. And this is terribly exciting because... Um, He's got some bits out for us. We've got he? actual, we've got stuff, documents, historical artifacts, items, and. Uh Peter, what, what what you got for us here? Well, yeah, I mean, just in case the, the 2,700 things we've got on display aren't enough, I thought I'd actually get some specific things relating to Germany. You mean, I listen to the podcast a lot. It's great to be on it. And you guys often talk about the war and the progress of the war and how that yeah. goes. And I thought maybe we get a few things out to look a little bit about the aftermath of that and what happens afterwards. Because obviously, as Montgomery said uh, on the 8th of May, you know, we've won the German war, but now we have to win the peace. Uh, and the Second World War doesn't really end on, on the 8th of May, 1945, certainly not in Europe anyway. When does it end? Well, technically, obviously, with the 15th of uh, August and VJ Day. Uh, but actually, the repercussions go on much longer than that. And I think it purely a question of it ends if I uh, am able to do a, uh, take a historian's prerogative and say, 
It depends. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd say on who ends, you ask and at what I'd point. I'd say it ends when um, Russian tanks leave Poland in the um, uh, you know, late 80s, early 90s. Of course, Russian tanks don't leave Germany until the mid-90s. Yeah, well, there we are. So perhaps even later than that. Um, and NATO's still in Germany. So you could say we're still occupying Germany. Anyway, a very, it's a very like British. Say, o- it's very British occupation. Like you say, it depends. So what, what have you got for what we've got for us here? Because well, the, the, y- y- looking at that, that concept of aftermath and everything that happens following the, the obviously the, the, the British breakthrough uh, into Germany and then the the, the, the weeks and, and, and couple of months of fighting that go on afterwards is everything that's going to follow that that, that declaration of, of, of peace uh, that, that comes out. And obviously, you know, for the British and Twenty First Army Group. They're transformed almost overnight. You know, they go to bed being uh, a lean, mean fighting machine, and then they wake up and have to be something incredibly different, completely different. They become occupiers, they become governors, and they have to become builders. So one of the things I've got out to really illustrate that is this map of Hamburg, which represents the bomb damage. And, you know, the irony being that this is years and years of, uh, of, of, of RAF and Allied efforts to, to, to reduce the German... Well, we were, talking about, we were talking about Operation Gamora just the other day, and you know, you, you, you look at this, and obviously it doesn't take a rocket science to work out that the red bit is the stuff that got flattened, and the blue stuff is still, I'd still say, around. But I'd say you look at 50, 15% of this map is probably blue buildings, and the rest of it is, is red, and I'm assuming that's bombed out, fire damage, destroyed. Exactly, and completely unusable. And so for the British, this Hamburg became the capital, really, of the British military government. Yeah. Uh, and so this city that they'd, they'd reduced to rubble, they were then going to have to quite literally rebuild. I mean, obviously, the most famous example of what the British do in Germany in the aftermath of war is the Volkswagen factory yeah. uh, at Wolfsburg, which, you know, they pretty much rebuild from the ground up, get that running again and become, you know, major suppliers of the raw materials such as steel. But as much as anything, they also become customers. You know, they are buying Volkswagen cars to right. use in, yeah. in Germany and in Austria in the commission there. So all of this is very much part and parcel of it. But just bought one this week, actually. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. But Golf. Know oh. where you stand. But, <laughs> but, but of course, there's also, a, I mean, there's a darker undercurrent to this stuff as well, because as part of that progress up through, through, through northern Germany, and in fact, on, in, as part of the drive up towards Hamburg, obviously the British have encountered Belsen. You know, we, we will have uh, recently, we, we've talked about Holocaust Memorial Day, which obviously yeah. is focused on, on Auschwitz. But there's Belsen as well, which is really the, the British's first contact with the elements of the Holocaust. You know, Belson's yes, not, yes. not a death camp in the same way that Auschwitz is, yeah. but it's still obviously a horrendous you, am and I right place. To think, I, I, mean, I've, I've, I visited it a, a long time ago, but I remember to think of the Jews that were at Belson at the time were being sort of held in a kind of limbo because Himmler was seeking to negotiate using their lives um, and to say to the Allies, look, here are some, here are some Jews you can have. See, we don't, we, we don't murder them all. Because he actually believed that the, that the world was run by Jews and that would, that, would, that would actually be a way of currying favour. I mean, it's, you know, it's also also essentially unbelievable that, that, that how, ingra- how totally anti-Semitism was. They actually they really believed it. Um, the, the conspiracy theories and everything. And that, that's who was at Belson, wasn't it? It's a, it's a mixture. I mean, there's, there's, there's uh, prisoners of war who are at yeah. Belson who've been marched out of the, uh, as, the, as the Soviets have advanced from the east, they've been marching prisoners of war away from, away from that front too uh, and moving them forward. Belson has actually been a bit of a, if it doesn't sound too banal a phrase, awful a phrase, it's almost a, it's a show camp yeah. uh, as a way of saying, look, you know, where we're actually settling and moving Jews to is really not that bad. They have barracks, they have fields and, and, and this sort of thing. And it had been part of the propaganda. But obviously towards the end of the war, you know, the, the Hungarian guards and the SS who are there are really just letting people die. Typhus is rampant uh, and it's horrendous. And the British who encounter that are just 
completely unprepared for what they find. The, the humanitarian mission they launch in the middle of still fighting an active campaign is one of the great, I think, one of the great stories of the war that sits yeah. alongside this. Well, among this. the first to reach there were 8th Armour Brigade. Um, and um, yes, I, was, I caught up with Stuart Watson, who obviously we've, we've had on the, on the podcast. Uh, and actually, one of the questions I asked him, because obviously yesterday was the anniversary of um, the relief of the siege of um, Leningrad, but also the, um, the, the liberation of Auschwitz. So we were talking about this. Uh, and um, I said to him, you know, well, how, how much did you know beforehand, um, you know, about what you were going to get? And he said, well, we had absolutely no idea. We just couldn't believe it. You know, he said, literally, we got to Belson. We, he said, I didn't actually go into Belson. But of course, you know, we knew exactly, you know, in no time, they knew exactly what yeah. Belson meant and what was what was being discovered there and he said you know we still we just couldn't quite believe it well as the I I, cause I met Lionel Hardman who was the rabbi who did the who did the funeral rites there in the immediate mm. aftermath and if you go there there's those enormous graves that say you know here lie 4,000 yep. and, and, and he said that he was in the mess and a load of guys came in and basically couldn't look him in the eye it's the first he knew of, of the camp. Right. The guys came and couldn't look him in the eye. And he, and he goes over and said, what's the problem? And they said, we're well, sorry, Rabbi, it's your people. And he had to go and find out what was going on. And when he got to the camp, he said, I saw the dead walking because the pe people were so yes. thin. I mean, we've got, I, mean, I haven't got them out because they, they are absolutely horrific. But yeah. some of the photographs of the camp and them burying the bodies. I mean, Richard Dimbleby, who's the, the BBC correspondent, goes in soon afterwards. And, and he says simply, you know, that day at Belson was the worst day of my life. Yeah. So, so what have you got from in the archive to, to show us? So, so we have a, relating to uh, we have various accounts of the archive. So here is actually an account from the 8th Middlesex, which talks about um, them seeing Belson in the aftermath. You know, they call it Belson concentration camp, the final degradation. And this is representative of really how Belson absolutely hardens British attitudes to Germans. You know, for, for really in, in, in those weeks since they crossed the Rhine, they've been taking town after town and people have began to feel very sorry for the German people. You know, they'd seen the rubble, they'd seen the aftermath, they'd advanced through places like Cleve who had been completely smashed up. And then Belson, they then encounter Belson and then suddenly there is this change and turn and this idea about well, how can you possibly say you didn't know what was going on yeah. you know how could you not smell the camp because there's the town of bergen is not that far away well, there's an i'm going to read a bit of this actually this is amazing on, no, okay, okay it goes at belson under the arc lamps and behind the wire of that gray hutted camp amid the pine forest men who followed the vile bestial nazi creed sought to debase the human being Surely and coldly by starvation, by a devilish denial of the barest necessities of life, by the confiscation of the elemental privacies, herding hundreds into a hut, they have forced their victims down to a way of life lower than that of the animal. Wow. That's quite something. Absolutely. And it meant that British attitudes sort of reached a stage where it actually says it in this document as well, that the Germans almost, well, they got what they deserved. Yep. Yeah. And, and now it's a question of, of, of almost of punishment. And actually, we're very familiar with the Nuremberg trials, obviously. Yep. But it's the Belson trial that yep. takes place uh, pretty soon afterwards. And here's a, a, here's a pass that's actually given to a, uh, uh, a, a young woman from the, from the ATS. Uh, so she can go sit in the public gallery and watch it Amazing. take place. Um, that was the first trial that used uh, video evidence because they sh broadcast the documentary the British Army made mm. of Belson camp in that uh, as they tried the, the camp commandant, some of the guards in that's particular. In October October of 45, so it's uh, admit, admit name, uh, uh, and then it's to War Crimes Court, Lüneburg, 1st of October 45. It's stamped and signed in. So the, so the British are running their own, basically their own local war crimes uh, uh, trials 
aside from the, the, the sort of big... I mean, they're show trials in a way, the Nuremberg trials, aren't they? Argu- arguably. Um, gosh, I didn't... So a friend, a friend and neighbour of mine is called David Bernstein, and, and David's father um, had the first cinema chain, he and his brother, um, Sidney Bernstein. And um, uh, in the war, he was, you know, part of the kind of British Army film unit and was sent into Belson and uh, shot all this film footage and then turned it into a much bigger thing. And the idea was to shoot this film footage that they put, then put in cinemas all through Germany. So those who were kind of wheeled out in front, you know, to actually see it, you know, all the people around Belsen were, were wheeled out. But everyone in Germany could then see this film and understand in cinemas, and they'd be forced to watch this film. And as Sidney Bernstein was making this movie, so he suddenly thought, actually, there's a bigger piece here. So started getting footage from the Americans, started getting footage from the Russians, the Soviets as well, and turning it into it. And then in October, they kind of sort of... They'd spent their disgust and, and they'd realised that actually kind of ramming their noses in it wasn't going to help kind of pick up Germany again. So they abandoned the whole thing and it was, it was eventually found, you know, about 10 years ago. Um, I'm sorry to mention this again, Peter, but in the Imperial War Museum at Vaults. <laughs> and um, and they, they got the funding to finish it and it was almost complete. They just hadn't finished editing the, they hadn't finished editing the final, final reel, but they had the kind of script for the commentary and all the rest of it and they put it back together and shown it out and it is a film that you only absolutely need to see once yeah it is horrific it yeah. really is just absolutely unbelievable and the shots of belson are i mean they're 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 not quite hd but they're they're not kind of grainy black and white this is properly vivid and it's really how long did really this disturbing. feeling last though with um the, 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 because because obviously the, the 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 idea that german all germans must be punished they must have all known that you can't sustainably occupy a country if you're in a sort of state of I suppose vindictive uh, anger. You can't do that for long without turning population against you, can you? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, the British occupation in Germany actually lasts until 1955. The formal occupation, yeah. the legal occupation. But the sense some people never let go of that. I mean, don't forget the the people that make up the occupying forces of the British are the people that fought from Normandy. I've actually got this photo album here. Um, this is from a guy called James Sale, who was in the uh, city of Yeomanry, uh, the sharpshooters. And he'd fought from North Africa. He'd fought into Italy and he fought his whole way into Germany. Um, and these are shots of the immediate aftermath of the war. And you know, there's, there's cocktail parties in requisition buildings. There's some shots of the, of the ruins. Um, this photo is amazing. This is a, a photo of, of what was called Operation Barleycorn. Uh, and that was actually a plan by later Field Marshal Gerald Templer, who was so significant in the, in the founding of the National Army Museum, to basically get the disbanded Wehrmacht out and into the fields and bring in the harvest. And so they're all brought out of their... Uh, internment camps, released into the fields, turned into farmers, and then brought back in again uh, to, to just to try and help and feed this this population. Because exactly as you were saying, you know, how do you maintain that attitude? Well, the British weren't going to let the Germans starve. No. Uh, and there's a particularly brutal winter in 46, uh, uh, 45 and 46. They all were in the 40s. And, 47. Um, and so there, there is a sense of pity for but the local the, Germans. You have the same thing as well, though, because there's hundreds of thousands of prisoners of war in, in the UK at the same time, who were working on farms, and uh, uh, so you've got this very, this very peculiar sort of dynamic back, back in, back in, in, in Blighty, as it were, where you've Germans doing the same thing. It's also, I mean, it's quite strange. Some of this, it is, and, and they're in Canada as well. I mean, and yeah. of course, the desire to not surrender to the Soviets means there's been a huge influx of, yeah. of military personnel into the British zone. Um, some estimates suggest a million more people came in. Uh, and you've got a population of about something, the equivalent of a population of about 
20% more than was there pre-war, trying to occupy about 30% of the housing that's left in some areas. Because the housing's all been destroyed. Precisely. So, <laughs> as well as trying to then quarter uh, the, the 21st Army Group and the British Army of the Rhine. But you've also got the denazification trials that are going on as well. Yeah. Uh, and you know the, the British process about 2 million cases in their zone of denazification. Um, and that includes looking at people who are obviously bad. It looks at people who are suspected to be bad. Uh, and then people who also have what they call the personal shine, you know, to, to whitewash their records, who yeah. have a, uh, someone who will stand up and say, well, actually, no, this person sheltered me from the Gestapo or this person looked after me and stuck their neck out and they didn't have to. The British are actually, I think, a lot more pragmatic in their approach to denazification, certainly yeah. than the Americans. Uh, and, you know, there are stories that in, in Berlin, I mean, this is actually a map of, 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 of Berlin. In Berlin, there's a, in, in the files you can see, in the files held in the National Archives, there are accounts of saying, well, we know that Herr Schmidt, who runs this cafe, was a Nazi, but at the same time, he runs a really good cafe, and if we close it down, then the troops will have to go somewhere else, and they'll spend their money in a different zone, so really, we should just let them keep it open. So there is this pragmatic sense, and then obviously, of course, what you have is, is the looming and increasing threat of the Soviets, which, you know, particularly after the Berlin blockade and, and the airlift that comes, it, it becomes obvious that those, that political expediency that had led them to, that led the, the Western allies and the Soviets to sort of park their ideological differences. Yeah. Once Germany's been defeated, that those rapidly fall well, away. I've been reading, Luke Daly Groves has written a lot about this quite recently because he's, he's got the book about Hitler's death and then he's also, he's written some other stuff about what was going on um, with various secret things that keep changing their names. So it's, you, can't, you can't say MI6, you can't say six service because they keep changing their names all the time at this point, various committees and all that sort of thing, discussing, well, you know what, we can, we can, we can arrest everyone and throw everyone in prison, but then we don't have a functioning country anymore. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because after all, I mean, the, 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 the remarkable thing about Berlin is the town planners that Speer was dealing with before the war, and then during the war, when in fact the, blit, the, the, the Allied bombing raids enabled Speer to clear parts of Berlin that he was planning to clear to build Germania. Yeah. Right, and there's a period. There's a period of the bombing where Speer's basically going, "Well, thank God for that, because I wasn't going to have. Uh, uh, <laughs> we were going to have to knock that block of houses down, and we, you know that was going to cause us a real problem." Blah blah blah. He, those town planners then go on to be the, the rebuilders, the, the people who rebuild the city. The I mean, it's interesting because my great mate Guy Walters. I mean, he did this book called um, uh, "Hunting Evil" about post-war Nazi hunting, um, and he always says that you know it should have really been called "Not Hunting Evil" because actually the number of people that were kind of brought to here was really, in the big scheme of things, comparatively small. Mm. And, and one of the uh, one of the examples he cites is that is um, the, the, the Gestapo team that kind of um, shot Roger Bushel, Bushel, you know, the great escaper, and. The guy who actually puts the bullet in the back of the head is a kind of very much a junior functionary who has got nice kids and family and all the rest of it. And really, you know, in the big scheme of things, he's not that much of a Nazi bastard. I mean, you know, he, 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 he is, but he isn't, if you sort of mean. He's nothing like as bad as a guy who says, put the bullet in the guy's, guy's head. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he really, at that particular moment... He doesn't have any choice. I mean, Roger Bush was going to be killed, whatever. And what so do you do? So he gets hanged. He gets hanged. And eventually the guy who orders this Gestapo functionary to do the actual shooting eventually gets caught. By that stage, it's kind of 1948 and everyone's just kind of sort of lost energy and can't be bothered anymore and realising that actually these people could be quite useful, quite useful to recruit for MI6 or whatever it might be. 
and he just gets away with it. And, and this is happening over and over and over and over again. And you certainly see by the late 1940s that the whole kind of hunting Nazi thing has just run out of steam. It's the most extraordinary photo on this album. Yes. It's two pictures. German youths being beaten in front of children of their own age as an example for stealing from British troops. And there's literally someone with his trousers down being... Thrashed. Being thrashed. <laughs> and, and that's wow. it. I mean, the, the British were the, the sole authority. You know, yeah. they, they made the law. They, they went where they, they want. I don't know if you've ever seen the film of Defeated People. No, uh, it's 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 available on YouTube actually. It's a it's an American film, but it was shown in British cinemas as well. And it basically explained that the British were going to have to stay in Germany to rebuild it, because after the First World War and the victory and well and Versailles, the the, the terms of defeat had not been enforced enough on yeah. the Germans, and that had allowed the rise of Nazism. Montgomery, of course, had served in that original British army on yeah. the Rhine uh, in the twenties, and so for him, when he came in, he was very clear and adamant. You know, the, the terms of this defeat have to be enforced, and we're going to do that through a variety of ways. One of which is through denazification. One of it is through redemocratization. But then, of course, there was a strange thing where Montgomery didn't want anybody talking to the Germans. His non-fraternisation yeah, rules, yeah, yeah. which you know, after some fall apart pretty quickly. Well, some rampant cases of VD, yeah, become pretty obvious that <laughs> no one's paying any attention in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, you know, going back to that map of Hamburg, you know, if you're going to rebuild that, the people who are going to do it are the Germans. Yeah. Uh, the people who are going to ser be serving you in the mess, the people who are going to be helping you run the police are all Germans. Yeah. And so the, the concept of non-fraternisation becomes, becomes... Impossible. It becomes impossible. impossible. And then on top of that, of course, as the Soviets are taking over, you've got this desire of saying, well, if we really grind these guys into the dust and we take away everything that anything they, any semblance of hope what's to stop them just having a revolution and be, and, mm. and going over to the soviet yeah. side at which point then there's a real concern about moving that border uh not across the Weser to the rhine or even beyond yeah. uh, and so that that greater geopolitical narrative begins to take over and that's where you begin to see the rehabilitation of of, of germany uh, as a country but don't get me wrong it takes a, it takes a long time i uh I spoke to a, uh, a, when I was writing my book and, and for our forthcoming exhibition here about the, the British Army in Germany since 1945, I spoke to a guy who, who did his national service and he said, you know, I hated the Germans. I was, I was raised by grieving women and I hated them. You know, he'd lost his father, he'd lost an uncle, he'd lost a grandfather in the first war. So at a grassroots level, these attitudes are harder to shift, um, but there's a definite push from above that actually it's, it's time to not necessarily let bygones be bygones, but there are bigger battles to fight. Wow, fantastic. Thank you yeah. so much. And uh, we're going to take a short break now. We'll be back in a second. This episode is brought to you by Viore. Give the active people in your life something they'll truly appreciate. Performance apparel from Viore. Whether they're into running, surfing, hiking, or even just casual walks around the block, there's something for everyone. And if you're not sure what to gift them, you can't go wrong with something from Viore's Dream Knit Collection. It's the perfect gift and so comfortable. Get 20% off your first purchase today at Viori, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person and I appreciate you. And I know exactly what you like all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, 
or The Pasta Lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Welcome back to We Have Ways. Um, uh, we're here at the National Army Museum with Dr. Peter Johnston, who has been taking us through items from the archive. And uh, in the first half of this podcast, James has had to nip out. So I, I, and he doesn't really know anything about this next bit, but I do, right? So what we're going to do is we're, we're, we're here to talk about Berlin after the war. Because after all, as we said in part one, the war doesn't end in 19 May, or the consequences of the Second World War. I, I mean, even... the. You know, it's too soon to say, isn't it? You could argue what those are and where those will end. Um, and so what we have here, Peter's got in front of us here from the archive, is a map of Berlin. And it's just marked 23rd of August 1960, East Anglian, uh, the Anglians, First Battalion East. So this is occupied Berlin before the wall goes up, but with, an, with, the, with effectively an internal border. And the three powers, or the four powers, depends on how you look at it. Does France count? Um, uh, <laughs> Yeah, of course it does. Um, and how they've divided up the city. So take me through this map. Yeah, of course. And, you know, th this map belonged to uh, the Royal Anglians. And actually, you can actually see where they've written Viking land, uh, which is their area of the British uh, zone that they've occupied up here towards Spandau, <laughs> uh, which is quite fun. But, you know, this very much is a legacy of the Second World War, the occupation yeah. of Berlin. And, and Berlin was a divided city. It was occupied territory. You, we're very familiar with the establishment of West Germany. You know, we all know West versus East Germany from yeah. the annals of, of, of sport and that sort of thing. But actually, West Berlin was entirely separate. West Berlin was not part of West Germany. Yes, of course. Yeah. So, so the military government that was established in 1945 remained. Yeah. And, and carried on going. And this was a real hangover from the war. In, in many ways, this is where the, the end of the Second World War had sort of time had stood still a little bit. And on this map, this is before the wall goes up. You can see the division between the British and the American zones. This is the British zone up here. And you know, this is 17th of July, Strasse, um, down uh, yeah. along here, which is where the, the British have their victory parade uh, in, in July 1945. Charlottenburg, or yep. Grotti Charlotte, as the, uh, as the Brits nickname it. Um, scene of Macherie's famous bathtub later on to the Cold War, which will mean a lot to your listeners who, who lived that Cold War warrior lifestyle. But, you know, and, uh, and the Grunewald, Ruhleben, Gatau, where so many yep. people would have come in and out of. All of this is be before the, the, the wall goes up. And... Before then, you know, movement between the zones, it was a little bit more challenging, but it was relatively easy. Yeah. Obviously, after the wall goes up, you can pretty much see the red line where this goes along, and Berlin is sealed off from the outside and becomes a real island in the Soviet sea. Uh, this is where Tempelhof is, obviously, which is the, the great, uh, the, 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 that great sort of national socialist edifice, the, yep. uh, the, the longest consecutive brick building in the world or something when it's built. Yes, yeah, something so, like that. And, and Well, and still is, because that thing's not falling down anytime soon. But... <laughs> You know, the, the, and these great monuments and these great places are all very much brought into what British life is. And yet, you know, despite the fact the Cold War, I mean, the Cold War is in a pretty deep, pretty deep freeze yes. in 1960. Um, Berlin has already been blockaded and then the Berlin Airlift has successfully yep. relieved that. And also, crucially, shown the Allied willingness to, to stand for Berlin yep. and not roll over, which means that the local people in West Berlin really like the Allies, they're yep. very happy to have them. Yep. And they're happy to continue to pay to have them there. Yep. Because 
everything the British do is on the West Berliners. Yeah. In their zone. Yeah. Uh, which is why they have great housing, they have great food, they have great training facilities. And they base themselves out of the Olympic Stadium. So it's but a pretty, it's the, it's a pretty good it's place str- to be. It's the strangest existence militarily because you're surrounded. Um, uh, you're a trip. You're a tripwire at best. I mean, maybe maybe they won't even bother with you. You know, if if the push comes to shove, it's going to all be about the Fulda Gap, anyway, isn't it? And uh, or, or, or you know, if, if the if the Soviets do attack, it's probably going to be somewhere else. Why bother? Well, I mean, if they're going to take anywhere, they're going to take Berlin purely from a symbolic yes perspective. Because so. this is the era of tanks on the on Friedrichstrasse. You know, there's famous photographs of standoffs with with uh, with um, American tanks. You know, fifty yards from Russian tanks, and what's going to ha- proper? What's going to happen next? Um, uh, Cold War encounters, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and and I mean, the British have their slight, basically have their own version of that as well. I think you know, uh, at Gatow, which is the airport where people begin to fly in and out of increasingly. You know, the the wall at Gatow is not a wall; it's a it's a chain link fence. Uh, and the joke is that that's because it'll be very easy for the Russians to drive through when they attack, and they actually <laughs> drive and they drive onto the British airfield to stop any kind of resupply from the air, uh, which obviously have been so significant in the Berlin yeah. airlift. So you are literally staring at this. You know, the the British have the ruins of the Reichstag in their zone, yeah. and there's an observation post that goes up there that look, can look over the wall, see the Brandenburg Gate and everything behind it, and that desolate wasteland and the Death Strip, as it. Yeah. Because obviously, you know, the wall develops over time. It doesn't just go up. Yes, as we yeah, all yeah. Remember it starts it. off. It starts off as a sort of rather crude, crudely concreted wall, doesn't it, with some barbed wire on it? If they mark it out the night on the night along the it's a parish boundaries isn't it so it's, 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 it's the most extraordinary thing the, the berlin wall i mean and it's a foot inside the soviet zone yeah because again it's this sort of weird we're at war but there's no reason why we can't be civil view which is we're not gonna we're not gonna seem to be provoking anybody so we're not gonna build the wall into the allied territory yeah. because that is a provocation yeah so we'll build it on our side because you know the Soviet zone is the Soviet zone, and we can do, we whatever do what we, we like want. in the Soviet zone. Because I saw, I saw it in like nineteen eighty four, I think, on a, a cadet camp where we went to Germany, and we were taken to see the internal border, and we didn't wear our uniforms because because it was, it was well, we'll end up in propaganda as child soldiers and something. Well, okay, fine, but we we are child soldiers <laughs> if, if you want to if you want to put it like that, you know. And um, and I remember the 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 the. the, the it would have been a corporal who was looking after us. There was a, there was a there was a ditch, and he said that's the border. That's our, that's, that's, or that's the border, our side. That's our marking of the border, that ditch. And then there's a, there's a stretch and there was an open stretch and then there was the fence. And, you know, and two goons in a, in a thing watching us from the other, the other side of the wire. But, 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 you know, I mean, this, the other thing, if people have been to Berlin, you go to, you go to Checkpoint Charlie, you go to Friedrichstrasse and there's that stretch that's sort of a kilometre of wall where they've left it kind of intact and then there's the stretch with all the graffiti on it. It, those, those now, I think, you know, what is it? It's 30 years later, isn't it? Feel like kind of tourist items and features now, rather than a very, very real, very like, um, uh, uh, it's, and I remember the border strip being incredibly imposing and real. You know, you'd read about it, you'd sort of seen it on the telly, but it actually really physically existed. It's the most extraordinary thing. And legacy, direct legacy of of the Second World War and the way the politics collapsed in on itself after the war. It did, and, and yet, and, and, and in some ways it, it didn't, uh, because the, yeah. the Soviet, one of the big Soviet war memorials is in the Tiergarten, 
which is in the British zone. Yes. And, yes, and so against, I, yes. And I need to ask you about that because having been there, there's you know there's a pair of I mean, and the thing is, it's not guarded anymore, is it? They've, they've stopped. So there were, but there were guys goose stepping there. There was a flame for the Eternal Soldiers, a pair of T-34s, a couple of artillery pieces. It's sort of it's it's what you it's what you'd expect from a Soviet war memorial. But it's it's what it's 300 meters from the Brandenburg Gate, and the wall was was um, this side of the Brandenburg Gate, as it were. That's the British side, of the, you know. So what's going on there? How, how does that war memorial survive? So obviously, because basically, because the Soviets had taken Berlin uh, yeah. and they you know, won the Battle of Berlin and occupied the city before the British and, and 7th Armoured got yeah. there, they decided where they were going to build their memorials. And, and for, for them, the, that location, the Tiergarten, was sort of a, a, it was a strategic place from where they'd launched the attacks yeah. on the Reichstag, and, which is yeah. only uh, you know, a few hundred metres to the north, uh, and all of this. And, and it's politically significant where it is, because the Brandenburg Gate is, is yeah. after all, a, a victory arch, and you've got the... The, you, you, so the victory monument the victory down monument, Yeah, 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 exactly. So it's, it's, it, that's where you put it, between the two big German victory yeah. things going... But both of them, basically. But, but obviously, then once the wall goes up, uh, there's a sense of well, what are we gonna, what are we gonna do? You know, we don't want to ban access to this because then we're seen as being hostile. Yeah. So we're gonna maintain it. So the Soviets would come in and they'd guard it, and the British would escort them in. And then they, then and then because that's a very unpopular memorial for all yeah. the reasons that we know about what the Russians do uh, in, in in Berlin and elsewhere in Germany, you know, the, it, it's nicknamed you know the the monument to the unknown rapist yeah. by some. You know, the the West Berlin's try and vandalize it, and they throw things at it, and they try and smash it. So the British then are in this strange position where they're protecting the West Berliners against the Russians, but they're yeah. protecting the monument from the West Berliners. And they're protecting the Russian soldiers from the West Berliners. Uh, and there's this strange, it's one of these strange sort of rituals and farces, if you will, of, of deterrence. But yeah. it, it's net there. And obviously Spandau is the big one, you know, maintaining access to Spandau uh, on the, the four-party system where yes. everyone takes a turn everyone to guard him. Everyone takes a turn to guard's yeah. But if he's got to go into hospital, a doctor of every single country has to be summoned. And brought in, and so obviously in, later in his life, as his health began to deteriorate, that happens more and more. And you know. so you have Russians being brought in. You've got Russians being brought into guard Hess uh, while he's in there, uh, and all the, the, this sort of and all this sort of thing. And, I've and tried. To, you know what? I tried to pitch a sitcom about um, the people who have to guard Hess because they're essentially they're in jail. They're, they're trapped because they're, and they're trapped in the conventions and they're trapped in the Cold War and they can't escape. Um, a, a friend of mine told me that. Hess would sit on an exercise bike and he had to blow a hairdryer in his face so he could imagine that he was on a bike outdoors. Out uh, I mean, I don't know if that's true. It sounds like a, that sounds like a Squaddy's tall tale, but I like it. I don't know, but you almost want it to be true, don't you? you whatever. But, it, yeah, it's, but, uh, let, let's say it's true. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 mean I think that, 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 that subject of Squaddy humour is, is really important because obviously what do British soldiers do? They laugh in the face of the blackest of things. And the wall is a pretty dominant imposing thing the threat of what happens if the russians choose to attack because it's really important to remember that that throughout the cold war period the british strategy was always about defense and then counter-attack yeah. it was never about attacking whereas soviet strategy was all about attacking yeah and um that means that you know for the, the british knew that if the russians would attack they wouldn't have very they wouldn't last very long you're talking 48 hours tops and that's yeah. probably out in the zone let alone in, in berlin um there is a plan to relieve berlin called live oak which isn't actually shelved until 1990 it's sort of rehearsed it's farcical it's never, yeah, it's never, never gonna, gonna work, work yeah. you know run an armor brigade up the autobahn with yeah. the third shock army coming the other way you know <laughs> 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 good luck to whoever tried it but 
fortunately no one ever has to. But for the British soldiers in Berlin, you know, the wall becomes a bit of a fascination because obviously they're professionals and they want to be there. And this is where it's going to be. This is yeah. the centre of the world yeah. for them, from their perspective. Uh, and so there's lots of jokes and there's laughter. You know, you try and provoke the Russians on the other side. There's some fantastic stories. In fact, in our, in our exhibition, you'll, you'll get to hear it. But, you know, where they... They basically bring two young officers in to one of the battalions that's doing its tour in Berlin. Mm. They show them round, um, and then they bring up an unmarked car, nab them off the street, throw them in the back, stick hoods at them, drive them round and round and round, dump them in a cellar. And then one of the, uh, 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 Julia, she's oh, brilliant. Julia then just shouts at them in Russian for about two hours, pretending to interrogate them in this random cellar. Um, and after they've had enough and they've sort of completely broken down and they're telling them everything they need to know about where, where, yeah. where all the British troops are and everything they know about the defence of the West, they then reveal it was all a big joke and take them up to the mess. Welcome to, the, welcome welcome to, to Berlin. Welcome to Berlin. <laughs> Amazing. Well, gosh, I mean, we've gone right off our Second World War piece here, but it doesn't matter, does it? Look, look at this whole thing. Uh, it, I mean, because, I, I, mean, I, I, you know, I, I was... Uh, 1990, I was, I, I was what? 20, I was 22 in 1990 when, uh, when it all ended. When this all ended, so I, I very much remember growing up, you know, with with threads and and uh, and uh, General John Hackett's Third World War and all that, and my father being a, you know, territorial Cold Warrior and going off to Germany and ex doing exercise and stuff like that. So this this whole picture is a, you know, I mean, is also another reason why I'm interested in the Second World War because how how on earth do you end up with all this? Some of it's quite and some of it's performative. Um, uh, as much as anything else, isn't it? it it's, it's, it's literal sabre-rattling, isn't it? It's, it's sabre-rattling within reason. So it's, push, yeah. it's pushing the boundaries. It's constant pushing the envelope. Uh, it's constant testing and, and, and pressing. And, you know, the, the, the way back in the British zone and, and, and the area there, you know, they were training for not a war, but the war. Yeah. Because about, about 48 hours was life expectancy. Yeah. In the 50s of tank commanders, life expectancy is a bit lower. It's about 36. Yeah. Um, and if, you know, uh, uh, John Kisley, um, who wrote that great book about, about Norway, the Norway campaign, yeah. we're back to the Second World War with John. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I interviewed him uh, when I was writing my book as well. And he said, you know, we, we knew that we'd probably die, but we were going to damn well stand and fight. Yeah. And we were going to bring glory to the battalion before we were invariably wiped out. Take as many with them as they could. And, that's, and that is yeah. very much the, the mentality and the attitude of the time. You know, everything was about preparing for this. And... One of the reasons why I think people would love living in Berlin for so long was because Berlin still had that, you know, even after the National Socialist period, it still had that Weimar yep. um, freedom, yep. you know, really sort of anything goes, experimentation. And, you know, the impending doom of the wall, it sort of just, just brought that around for a new generation. It was a really young city because obviously yep. um, if you lived in West Berlin, you didn't have to do military service. That's so right, lots yeah. of people are moving into West Berlin yep. from elsewhere. In, Kreuzfeld's in, in full Germany. of hippies and, uh, uh, and um, peaceniks. Bowie and, rocks up in there yeah, as well. Yeah, Bowie and all that sort of uh, thing. Yeah. And so it's, it's got this really um, Bergen art scene and everything like that. And, you know, it is so radically different from anywhere else. Ultimately, that's why soldiers join the army, yeah. is to go to different places and experience different things. And Berlin offered that in abundance in the Cold War. And I have to say, everybody... Everybody I've spoken to, and I did, oh, it must have been about 150, 200 hours of yeah. interviews for this project. Um, those who served in Berlin, hands down, all claim it as their own, uh, as their favourite. And that's true of, of, of both soldiers, but also their spouses. Because don't forget, there's, there's families that live in here yep, as well. Yep. This, is not just, uh, this, is not, this is not just soldiers, it's their families too. And the families used to go through the wall. It was great. You could go through the wall on a coach. Um, <laughs> you could buy, um, you had enormous spending power yeah. because the, the exchange rate was you so good. You had to good. spend it all though, didn't you? Yeah, you sort of had to spend it all. Um, yeah. but so they, they could get their hands on your Deutschmarks. 
uh, yeah, but they use, and, and they've got Bass British Armed Forces yeah. vouchers, the special yeah. like monopoly money the British Army used that lasts in Berlin way longer than it lasts in the rest of the zone. <laughs> um, these relics of the of the Second World War and then the immediate occupation really do live on in, in Berlin in particular, um, and it is a bit, as I say, it's a bit of a time warp. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for talking about this and showing us some stuff in the archive. Um, this exhibition about the British Army uh, in post-war Germany, when, when does that start? Is that it's going to open on the 9th of May, so, so VE Day, Brilliant. the weekend. Oh, superb. And it very much is exactly, you know, you, you, we're going to hear all about you know, the, that, that, that victory that is, a, that is accomplished in Europe yeah. uh, and then everything after that comes after this because, you know, it's, it's not the end of the story. In fact, it's, a, it's just the beginning. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Peter. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheerio.